Hello everyone and welcome to Canon Rinse Sound of Play 145. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the mini video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 145 is John Richter, a.k.a. <laughs> we have uh, David Derbyshire. Is that perfect pronunciation uh, for, okay. of both names? Thank you, Ryan. Excellent. Now, you have two names. What is the reasoning for this? This, this is going to take some explaining. So, um, <laughs> D- David Derbyshire is my actual real name. Um, the problem with him is he's a, a boring accountant by trade. So, that, that's usually oh, so a conversation like a Batman killer. type of thing. You have an <laughs> alter ego and you're... Uh, like a weedy Batman, you're front-facing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah. So, Dave is, is my real day, day job kind of self. Whereas, John Richter is my writer name. So, I... Uh, I write and publish um, a sort of weird, dark fiction under the name John Richter. And that's what I'm known as on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. So for the purposes of today, I suppose I'm in the guise of John Richter. That's right. John Richter by night. Absolutely. And just to explain it, by the way, it, so I, my first book was published um, a couple of years ago, which which was great. Mm-hmm. A sort of a, it was um, a thriller, a whodunit murder mystery thriller about a dead professional wrestler. Which I thought hmm. that was a sort of untapped gold mine for horror, uh, sort of crime thriller storylines, <laughs> cast of incredible characters, and so on. Um, and it suddenly occurred to me that I didn't have to publish it under my own name. I could come up with a different one. So I sort of pondered and ummed and ahed over what it could be. And in the end, I thought I'd name myself after, you know, that sort of bald villain from Total Recall, the one who gets his arms chopped off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That seemed fitting, but I went for Richter in the end. Well, you see, having your arms chopped off would give you a huge disadvantage as, as a writer. That's a, that's a really good 
point. just about the only disability that could really throw you off your writing game. <laughs> in, in some ways, it was the worst possible choice in that case. But hey ho, <laughs> it's too late now. You've done writing in the past, of course. Are any of the pieces that you've written inspired by video games? Um, completely and utterly very much so. Um, I, I suppose that was one of my main um, reasons for, well, not just picking that first track, but all the picks that I've, that I've chosen today. So mm-hmm. I think that... So, so I love stories. That means I love books. I love reading. I love movies. But books and movies are both inherently, is the word voyeuristic, you're kind of a third party that's observing right. someone else's adventure or misfortune or peril. Whereas the video game medium, to me, is the best storytelling medium because it's inherently more interactive and therefore there's scope for more of a sort of emotional gut punch immersion. Um, And I do think, I guess without letting the cat out of the bag, all all the picks for today are from games which I think have got incredible stories or certainly storyline twists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, this first piece is a very evocative piece from Bioshock. Uh, This is composed by Gary Scheiman called The Ocean on His Shoulders. Why is it that you picked that piece in particular? It it was really difficult to pick uh, from a number of tracks from that game. I really, really wanted to have an opportunity to bang on about how much I love that game. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember, and again, um, I suppose without giving away any spoilers, but this sort of mid to late game plot twist in Bioshock, the original, is, in my opinion, the best storyline twist that's ever happened. Um, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's not the best in a video game. To me, it is the greatest jaw-dropping, shocking plot twist that I've ever encountered. So if, if there's anyone listening who hasn't played it yet, um, I, I would recommend it massively. And, and I just think everything about Bioshock is fantastic. It's a great setting. It's a great the whole idea, the whole concept of Rapture, that sort of underwater mm. city that was, you know, envisages this kind of elect- intellectual um, sort of paradise, utopia that's obviously sadly gone gone very horribly wrong. That the characters, the voice acting, amazing, um, and that sort of haunting violin, cello-driven soundtrack. I just think it perfectly captures that that idea of this great city that's now faded. It's therefore quite sad, but it's also scary, dark, and horrible, with with lots of nasty things lurking in the corners. Yeah. Now, of course, I don't want to uh, poke holes in a love of a game, but. Uh, you said that you liked every aspect of it, and um, I'm interested. Did you get on with the final boss? I know that's kind of a falling off point for a lot of people. Great question. I'll tell you why I didn't mind the final boss as mm. much. Ooh, can I do this without giving the give, doing a bit of a storyline spoiler? <laughs> I'll, I'll try um, not to. Well, I guess we could talk around the specifics, but uh, I don't know if... <laughs> A lot of people will have played it, of course, but you're right. I will attempt to uh, navigate this mine, this spoiler minefield that I've blundered into. It's a pretty old game by now, but you know, even still, it is a good, good story twist. Oh, it's awesome! It's awesome. And so, because I, because the villain, the ultimately revealed villain of mm-hmm. that game, is such a despicable piece of work, the fact that that is the person you come up against, even if it's in this really sort of disappointingly mundane, mediocre um, guise and, and re- really sort of so much originality in the game up to that point. To, to mm-hmm. the, the final boss almost feels, and I think Ken Levine even said it in an interview that he feels like they just sort of ran out of ideas. But 
even so, I just enjoyed the opportunity to kill that horrible bloke. That's fair. I mean, maybe there's a, an aspect of the, I guess the outward expression of the character finally kind of reflects the in, inward ugliness of the character. Definitely. And I think the other Bioshocks, which uh, there's almost excellent points you can take from all of them. Like the second game, mm-hmm. I think you can criticize the plot. Uh, it's, it's nowhere, it's, it's not on a par with the first one in my opinion but the actual gameplay had been modified and kind of honed to a to a in my opinion it was kind of the pinnacle of the Mm -hmm. series and then bioshock infinite i actually didn't enjoy the gameplay a great deal i found it quite frustrating and repetitive and you know i'm sure that was nothing to do with the fact that i wasn't very good at it Uh, anyway (laughs) but the actual story the characters fantastic so that whole series I'm, i'm sad really that we seem to have feels like we've seen the last of it you never know, because uh, just recently there have been rumors uh, coming out of Kotaku, I believe, that there is another Bioshock game in the works. Yeah, I, I don't know if Ken Levine is still helming this one or whether it's a Bioshock in name, name only. I know that recently there's been a Metal Gear game helmed without Kojima, and so you know anything can happen. Maybe it's an opportunity for a fresh team of artists to come in and give an established series, a a new coat of paint and a new perspective, or maybe it's just a profitable name that they can squeeze some more life out of. Uh, We'll we'll just have to find out. It could go go either way, couldn't it? It's, I'm not, I'm not completely averse to new people picking up a sort of an IP and running with it because I'd rather Mm -hmm. that than it just dies. But at the same time, we've seen some of our most beloved franchises just go completely wayward because they've just yeah. been given to the wrong the wrong developers, I guess. And even some of the ones that have stayed fresh over the years have stayed in the hands of the same people. And so you almost kind of fear what is what's going to happen to it after after those people leave the helm of the ship. Are they are they just going to are the new people that take over going to just imitate what came before or are we going to give them enough leash to uh go off and experiment on their own yeah and um i I guess we'll circle back on that when my next pick comes on uh, which will Mm -hmm. all be all will become clear when you find out what that is anyways let's go on to a game with another very strong creator at its helm Uh, this next piece of music is from near automata the original near was talked about in canon rinse 111 and i should mention before we move on from bioshock that that was discussed in canon rinse number 69 and 73 for the sequel and 310 for infinite anyways back to near automata Uh, the piece that i've chosen is just a really pleasant piece of music called Voice of No Return, Normal by Keiichi Okabe. And I feel like this piece of music emphasizes a lot of the things that I like about the near, both near soundtracks actually, and just the really clear, crisp instrumentation, the vocal singing, which is something that you don't hear all the time in video game music. Um, but it's just, it's very relaxing. It's very serene. It feels weirdly natural for a game about robots and androids and a time at which humanity has left the planet. There's hardly anything untouched by technology that you encounter in the game, but still you have these very naturalistic sounding pieces of music that escort you from place to place, almost makes you feel like you're in some sort of a natural world, like a a fusion of machinery that's been kind of reincorporated into the natural order of the world and uh, I, I just find it to be a pleasant piece of music 
Uh, I like the game a lot, of course. Um, that is a favorite of mine from last year. So let's listen to Voice of No Return, Normal, by Keiichi Okabe from Nier Automata. So, John, as a writer, we are moving into a, another piece of music from a game that does a lot of storytelling, but mostly kind of procedurally. Uh, this next piece of music is from The Sims 2. How do you feel about this new realm of procedural story generation, not only in games like The Sims that generate social interactions, but also uh, more robust simulations like Grand Theft Auto and Just Cause and, uh, you know, all these games where the uh, the world and the systems do a lot of the storytelling for you. Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, you know. I think it's, um, in some ways, it, it represents the next evolution of storytelling in games. Uh, I'll try and explain what I mean by that. So I guess all of my picks, as I alluded to earlier, are from games with great stories, but they are mm. all inherently very linear and you are funneled through the story um, uh, as, as the player in a, in a fairly 
you know, as the artist intended kind of way. Everything happens in the in the same order every time you play it. There's not a great deal of scope for, you know, yes, there are kind of little side areas or optional things that you might miss, but fundamentally it's the same story for everyone who plays the games. Whereas if you get into the territory of, I think, what they call sort of emergent narrative, um, where you can completely have your own unique adventure in this sort of sandbox environment... I think that is um, if we can if we can find a way to make sure they are compelling adventures, then then that's got to be an improvement. I guess the the, the counter to that is if you find that the sandbox just becomes really vanilla and sort of boring and repetitive, and then yes, you might have a hundred different stories, but if they're all a, a bit dull, then it's it's um, sort of missing out on the potential of the medium, I guess. There are some games like Just Cause 2, I would frequently say, every time that I would play it, I would come away with amazing stories to tell. Like that game is one that I consider really finely honing and crafting the procedural storytelling uh, possibility of video games. Um, and then, of course, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, like a lot of people throw that same compliment at that game, saying that, you know, every single time that they played, everywhere that they went, something interesting happened. And, uh, you know, you, it's hard to tell even what was intended uh, experiences by the game's designers and what was a... It, could be the only time that anyone's ever experienced this just because of how the procedural factors all aligned. Uh, do you think as a writer that if you create a interesting world with, with systems that interlock and, and play off of each other and essentially do the storytelling for you and don't have an authored narrative, is that still a valuable artistic contribution? Uh, that's a great question, actually. Yeah, he's almost coming at it from the the artistic merit and so so here's a thing that happened to me as it just one that uh, pops into my head is the first time i ever played minecraft and i sort Mm. of got used to it and i think i had to watch a couple of tutorials to figure out what the heck i was supposed to be doing but um once i sort of oh yeah punch a tree get some wood etc got got myself going and i think i ended up on some you know crazy mission down a ravine and i found some diamonds and it was exciting oh these are so rare i need to get these back to base but i'd completely lost track of where my base was and obviously if you die en route then you've you've lost everything and you've blown Mm -hmm. it and i think in the end i was down to like one little last bar of health because i'd not taken any enough food and the character was starving into death and he's being assailed on all sides by spiders and skeletons and and so I, I was tunneling my way up desperately towards the surface just hoping to get myself back out into the open it felt like I'd been down there for days um, and then I cracked through the surface and immediately a load of water poured in because I, it hadn't <laughs> occurred to me that I was in the middle of the ocean so it flooded me straight back down the tunnel to into the waiting you know jaws of the skeletons and I died horribly and so that, obviously that was a kind of a sad ending really but it was a great it felt like this really organic great story that no one had scripted but it occurred and I was quite sort of taken by that really really impressed with it Um, and therefore I think if it's capable of delivering an experience of that nature it's got to have artistic merit even if no one has as you say authored it if if that makes sense yeah it's really interesting I, I guess you could make the argument that people who create the systems through which procedural stories emerge are kind of like the Play-Doh company. They're creating the raw materials that the 
of people who interact with it and make the experience from. I mean, I guess that's how all art is. Like it's only valuable in its interpretation and uh, observation. But there's something so different about this type of video game storytelling. And of course, I'm I'm a huge believer in procedural storytelling, and so I, I'm not trying to. Uh, diss that particular skill set, but it's just, uh, it really changes the way that you look at the discipline of, of writing and, and crafting a narrative. It does. And I, I, what I can't quite figure out is how you would apply similar principles to almost the written form that I sort of work in. Um, I, I know there are stuff that I did read about because I had this idea, thought it was ingenious, and then found out someone already did it about 30 years ago. There was someone who wrote a book that had, uh, I don't know, let's say there were 100 pages, and every page you could just shuffle it. It wasn't presented in any order. Mm. So you, every time you read it in a different shuffled order, you a different story would emerge. Ah, interesting. I, I've never actually read it, but it sounds amazing. So there are things you can do. Um, I, I read a book called House of Leaves by uh, oh, Mark. Danielewski, I hope I've got the name mm-hmm. right. And that was a, you know, a character's descent into a labyrinth and the slow kind of madness that set in. And then as you read through the book, you're turning it from side to side and upside down because all the lettering's all over the page in funny places. And then you realize, oh, oh, I get it. The author wants me to feel like I'm lost in this maze with him. <laughs> Brilliant. So I think there's a lot more uh I guess there's still innovation to, to be had in, in all the, all, you know, the written medium as well as video games. Even a toy like a slinky, like the way that it moves and like walks downstairs and conserves its energy and kind of flops around in interesting ways. Like it's just a simple machine playing off of physics interactions in the real world, of course. But, you know, it's hard to not almost project some kind of a human characteristics onto it just because of the real like organic way in which it moves. There's a, there's a, there's a whole um, link back to the previous track actually talking about near automata is oh, yeah, o- yeah. obviously in the world we're in now we the ro- the rise of the robots is occurring all around us um you know give give it <laughs> 10 20 30 years the world's going to be really weird and there's going to be machines doing things that we can't even conceive of and then you're into the territory of machine generated art and robots mm. interacting with other robots in unexpected ways so there could be a lot more um, emerging stories, uh, hopefully not in too much of a sinister Terminator Skynet kind of way. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Well, for right now, let's look at The Sims 2. This was a request from Spacefarer from the forum who says, I'm always amazed at the power of nostalgia since I've probably heard this tune hundreds of times, and yet it still takes me back to 2004, the release year of The Sims 2. Never played the original, but as soon as I saw its sequel on the TV show Gamesville, it was straight into my Christmas list. I've attached a picture of my original copy, which my dad apparently found down the back of an eBay sofa. It's a fantastic game, and probably the last Sims we'll ever have that hasn't been nickel and dimed to within an inch of its life. Always remember trying to get the game working on my tin pot computer, which barely ran Windows XP. My cousin was over, and we installed it and started it up, and it was like waiting for a dodgy Spectrum tape dipped in treacle to load. And surprise, surprise, when we finally got to playing it, we had to go home. Enough waffle. Here's the track. The Sims 2 Neighborhood Theme by Mark Mothersbaugh. It's kitschy, it's fun, and it sounds like a world of opportunities awaits you, which, after a few expansion packs, it certainly does.
Right, we're getting now into a theme from a horror game, a very famous theme from a very famous horror game. And now you mentioned before that you've written mysteries that are kind of uh, in a horror or, or, or scary type of spectrum, uh, that kind of intensity that comes with the murders and everything. Have you ever written like a fantasy horror or anything that that's um, in that vein? I am. Um, well, I guess my next pick is, is the main inspiration for lots of what I have written. Um, my most uh, recent novel, which is called Never Rest, is set on a sort of melancholy, mysterious, mist-shrouded island, which is was heavily, heavily influenced by this game. I, I just think the setting, uh, well, to explain what it is, uh, the, the game is Silent Hill 2, um, and, and I know that is a, a very popular, beloved game, and rightly so, because it just gets so many things right. But in particular, the setting, the idea of this town that is abandoned, um, a, a sad, tragic place. People have all disappeared, except for a very small handful of very weird, peculiar characters where everything they do and say is just is just a little bit off. And the idea of this town that metamorphosizes to fit the particular brand of tortured psyche of the person that it is summoning is, is to me, just ingenious. I remember in Silent Hill 3, there's a moment where you've been plowing through the game, surviving the monsters and the horrific, terrifying creatures that you encounter. And then you meet the guy, I think his name's Vincent, um, and your character says, you know, uh, this place is full of monsters and he says something like monsters they look like monsters to you and I just remember that being a, just a chilling line that this idea that maybe you've been killing things that aren't necessarily monsters mm. at all uh, I, I found the whole Silent Hill as a, a very very inspirational place to me if that makes sense what elements of it have you incorporated into your own writing then I, I think there are, there's not just that sort of idea of a quiet, melancholic, faded town that is, you know, wrapped in a cloak of mist um, that seems to be hiding something really sinister, but you're not quite sure on arrival exactly what it is. So certainly the setting I've found, I've found very, very inspirational. Um, I think the characters, in particular in Silent Hill 2, I love the main character, James Sunderland. He mm -hmm. is a, he's, he's very much an everyman, but he's not some of some video games have a sort of everyman vanilla character and they're just dull whereas James was he he was trying to be this kind of noble good guy he was very sort of meek you know his skills with weapons were minimal he wasn't a sort of tough power fantasy you know marine or anything like that and the voice actor that played him, although infamously Silent Hill 2 had uh, sort of amateur voice actors that, in effect, I think they sort of randomly picked a few people off, off the street rather than hired professional voice actors. But I think a lot of them did a great job. Guy Seahe, who, who does the voice of James, I think he, he nails it as this determined, stoic, but very frightened, quite weak man. Um, and I think this particular track, uh, it plays during a sequence where James is confronted by another character called Angela Orozco on a staircase. The staircase is, is burning, is on fire. 
James comments on this because it's yet another incredibly bizarre um, scene that doesn't really make any sense on the face of it. Why would this fire be taking place here? And Angela says to him, uh, for me, it's always like this, which is a telling um, Mm. insight into her own problems and her own torture. And then there's a knife that you've obtained from Angela earlier in the game that uh, doesn't do anything. And, and every time you try and use this item or interact with it, it's just it's just pointless. She asks for it back, um, having given it to you in an earlier scene. She says, hand me that knife. And James delivers this line, no, I won't. And t- just perfectly captures it. So uh, uh, yes, I'm very much um, the character of James Sunderland is is someone that I've I've probably has probably indirectly cropped up in in a number of my stories over the years. It's interesting. On a similar note, did you uh, did you get on with Alan Wake? So never played it to my shame, and the reason is um, I've never owned an Xbox console. I'm only yeah. I've only ever been a PlayStation guy, so I have missed out on Alan Wake, which is a real shame. One day I will go back to it and um, and have a go. Definitely, one game I was lucky enough to finally get round to of a similar ilk was uh, Deadly Premonition. Which I oh, yes. absolutely <laughs> loved it every minute of it. It's obviously like every a minute. That's uh, I think even the hardcore fans will admit there's a few minutes in there that are very difficult to get through. <laughs> that, that, that could be a fair point, actually. Maybe I've just um, sort of expunged those from my memory, but there were so many good ones as well. Um, and it's, yeah, that game, a lot more of a sense of humor and obviously very, very, very heavily influenced by Twin Peaks. But I love Twin Peaks anyway, so another sort of feather in its cap. Of course, that is uh, also driven by a very enigmatic very odd personality at its helm in Swery 65. Charming guy, though. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, just his sort of back catalogue of very bizarre games. I think he did the one, was it called Dark Dreams Don't Die? Which yes. I, I, I played at one of my, I think that's another Xbox only, if I've got my facts right. Xbox and PC, yeah. So one of my friends owns it. Um, so I had, a, I had the pleasure of playing that game recently. And um, was if, yeah, if you thought Deadly Premonition was weird, that game is just completely off the deep end. Yeah, that is a strange one. Uh, and never finished either. Unfortunately, it leaves you on a bit of a cliffhanger. Never to be resolved, most likely. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that means it'll retain its, you know, aura of mystery. We'll never know what the ingenious ending was going to be, and he probably doesn't himself either. I imagine Swery sixty five was just gonna, was just making it up as he went along, or maybe <laughs> I'm doing him a disservice. True. Anyways, let's get back to Silent Hill two. Uh, what you're bringing us here is the theme of Laura Reprise by Akira Yamaoka. Every time I've heard this song, and I've probably mentioned this on Sound of Play before. It always reminds me of the uh, the Three Dogs Night song. Just an old-fashioned love song Playing on the radio And wrapped around the music Is the sound of someone Promising they'll never go It's just, uh, I think it's just the same chords or whatever, but it really puts that song in my mind. I, I guess... Listen, listen for that. See if you can hear it too. At least give me some sort of a validation that I'm not going crazy too. As this plays, this is Theme of Laura Reprise by Akira Yamaoka.
So now we're moving to something entirely different. This is from a Crash Bandicoot game. That's about as distant to 180s you can pull. This is a request from the forum that comes from Sergeant Silent, who says the entire OST is arranged by Spiral Mouth, an acapella group, and I think they did an amazing job on the entire soundtrack. Personally, I would recommend Sanity Island, though this is only because I can't suggest the entire song list. This comes from Crash Twin Sanity, one of the later non-Naughty Dog Crash Bandicoot games in which Crash Bandicoot teams up with his, I guess, arch nemesis, uh, Dr. Neo Cortex, and uh, they have to go on an adventure together. But yeah, this this piece of music is absolutely nuts. <laughs> like, it's uh, it, it feels very very like Nickelodeon, that kind of Ren and Stimpy kind of way. Brilliant. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite fun. Now, John, do you get on with uh, acapella music at all? I suppose I'm not. I wouldn't describe myself as a connoisseur. I, I, I tend to get really into things for short periods of time and then get bored of them and move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So when it's music from a particular video game, which I do have phases where I just become incredibly uh, into things and listen to them to death, you then find you're, you're looking to buy or, or get hold of, you know, kind of remixes and different versions. So inevitably you'll stumble upon acapella remixes of songs quite often and and some of those are just incredible so yes i i quite like them as uh if that not sure i've heard this one before though it's an interesting one i guess we'll let it speak for itself this is Sanity island by spiral mouth from crash twin sanity <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, the next track is one of uh, one of my favorites, of course. This is called Pig Riding, <laughs> interestingly enough. This is composed by Kenny Young, a, a guest of Sound of Play in the past from Sound of Play 92, and he was on our Sound of Play 100 special as well. Uh, this comes from Tearaway, which is Canaan Rinse number 138, if you want to go back and listen to our thoughts on that uh, very odd and interesting ps vita game turn into uh, another really really cool ps4 remake kind of a remake loose remake added a lot more stuff changed a lot in the translation my favorite thing about tearaway is how how well it utilizes whatever technology it's ported onto you know i almost want one of these for nintendo switch as well because it just fully takes advantage of every like weird peripheral accessory that is is baked into the Vita. Um, it uses the camera, it uses the the back touchpad, the touch screen, the the tilt, like everything you can think of that you can do with the Vita. They've experimented with in Tearaway, and and similarly they they do that same kind of thing in Tearaway Unfolded, I believe it's called on the PS4, um, just utilizing the PS4 camera, all the things you can do with the controller. Um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating gaming experiments, I guess you could call them. Uh, but this particular piece of music is one that stuck out to me immediately on the Vita version of the game. And uh, it's a, a fun kind of barnyard swing fiddle piece that you get when you are riding a pig uh, through this this course it's very linear it's not meant to be a challenging part it's more of a celebration and so i was looking forward to encountering this again in the ps4 version because i know that they reorchestrated a lot of the score to the game and i was uh, just curious to hear like what this piece of music would sound like on the ps4 version and when i got to it i was actually a bit disappointed they changed it so substantially that it um it, it kind of loses the not the energy, it maintains the energy, but it loses the kind of optimism and the giddiness of the original version of the song. And so I'm going to be playing both of these back to back with the PS Vita version first, the PS4 version last. And um, I guess just uh, give me some feedback on uh, which one you like better, because maybe the PS4 version really is a better composition and I just kind of m- miss it for the expectations that I go into the song with. You know, maybe there really is something something there. I think that I'll always be beholden to the PS Vita version. So let's go ahead and start with that. And we'll uh, see you on the other side.
The first one's better in it than the second one. <laughs> the second one has a lot going on. It feels like a outdoors, like hunter spirit to it. You know, there's something very traditional about that piece of music. Uh, it feels more kind of like northern UK, less like the southern US of the original piece of music. Interesting way to phrase it, because of course that's where I'm from. And I was going to say that the second um, version sounds like a sort of a sad version of the first one, which yeah, is very much yeah. what the nor- northern UK is like, a sad version of um, <laughs> the rest of the UK, you know, because it's more rainy and cold and we've got less money. So maybe that fits perfectly. <laughs> There's something there. It's an interesting reinterpretation of the piece of music. When I was playing through that part of the game, I almost expected it to reemerge into the happier version of the song from the PS Vita version of the game. Because, you know, I, I was familiar with that piece of music and I thought, oh, this is going to be a really nice kind of transition reversal of the, the tone and the, the, the mood. But it never did. It just. I wonder uh, why. I wonder why they changed it. Why didn't they just use the original piece? It doesn't yeah. seem to have anything wrong with it. It didn't need remaking. <laughs> but a very strange choice by uh, by Kenny, who I agree was a brilliant guest, by the way. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, of course, you know we don't mean to put down his compositional decisions. Of course, that entire soundtrack on both versions. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. I, I really love the work that he and, and Brian had done on those. But yeah, you know, it's just, uh, it's an interesting choice. I would love to learn more about that if he's ever uh, around these neck of the woods again in the future. I'll make sure to ask him. Yeah, you'll have to challenge him on that one because I agree. He's, <laughs> it comes across as a great guy and clearly a massive ingenious talent. So I'm sure mm-hmm. he'll be able to explain it. Um, for if the, the mere mortals like me can't possibly comprehend <laughs> Let's move on to another piece of music. This comes from Psychonauts, and this is another request from the forum from Brazenhead89, who says, We've apparently made up for the frankly unforgivable lack of saxophone in gaming soundtracks, if some previous podcast picks have been anything to go by. Therefore, I move that we give the harmonica some overdue love. I can think of no better, more gorgeous example than Psychonauts' whispering rock Psychic Summer Camp by Peter McConnell. The gentle yet sunny track sounds exactly like a roaring campfire, a lazy lie down in a hammock, and a calm river breeze lapping at your face. The light twanging guitars lays down the perfect foundation, but it's the harmonica that carries the track to absolutely exquisite heights. That it's attached to an utterly delightful game is merely a cheeky bonus to a track that stands up to repeated listens no matter the circumstances. I've loved Psychonauts for about as as long as I can remember now. That's kind of what got me interested in in, uh, studying psychology in the first place. Not the only thing, of course, but it kind of contributed to it. Uh, I like the way that it kind of reframes the therapeutic process almost of going inside of somebody's mind, kind of empathizing with their subjective experience and projecting that out into how they view the world and how altered perception of course, changes the way that you interact with people. And they are behaving in very sane and uh, justifiable ways, given their subjective views of the world. So 
Uh, it's an interesting game. There's a lot going on in there. We talked about it in Canon Rinse number 99. This piece of music I'm very familiar with. Um, I never fell in love with it because I felt like it was a little meandery, uh, but it definitely does have a strong sense of of place. Like I, it really brings me back to the Whispering Rock Psychic Summer Camp, you know. But I, I tend to like the music that has more of a tune rather than just the the setting pieces. But there's certainly a lot going on here. How do you feel about? music that is more tune driven versus music that's just kind of ambient that's a great question when i was younger i was definitely it's got to have a tune i've got to be able to hum it or remember it or sort of um Mm. sing it and if it was i I used to you know the idea of buying the score from a film and it was all this very kind of ambient scene setting stuff it, it used to do nothing for me and then i don't know in the last few years completely flipped and now i buy loads of sort of scores and um, the, the, the more sort of ambient scene setting stuff, I, I tend to have that on in the background while I'm writing. So it'll be, you know, Silent Hill okay. soundtrack all the way or, or just some, you know, you get these YouTube playlists of, you know, 100 hours of dark, ambient, creepy music and it's great. So mm-hmm. I, I if, if it's done well and it creates a mood and a feeling, um, yes, I'll happily sit there and, and listen to the more ambient stuff for ages. Now, is that an expansion of your taste or just kind of a change in the utility of the music that you listen to as more kind of background pieces that you don't want to be distracted by necessarily? That's a good question. I, the honest answer is I'm not sure. I, I think your tastes do change over time and, mm-hmm. and your interests change. And, you know, we could get really philosophical about it and say, are we even the same people that we used to be when we were young? Because all our atoms have apparently get fully replaced yeah. <laughs> every seven years or whatever it is. So, um, so no, there's probably all manner of different explanations. But yes, I, uh, I, I think... I think ambient soundtracks can be... Oh, there's so many great examples. I watched the, the new Blade Runner quite recently, Blade Runner 2049, which I had really low expectations of because I thought, oh, it's just going to be this kind of shameless Hollywood cash-in. And I thought it was absolutely ace. Um, and the soundtrack, I immediately got that as soon as it was available because that sort of really nasty sort of pummeling sort of ambient sound they managed to conjure up for the city scenes and then this kind of beautiful sad melancholy but but quite magnificent soundtracks that they had for the sort of um more kind of outdoor pieces away from the city that that whole soundtrack did did a lot for me that's interesting well let's listen to some psychonauts music this is whispering rock summer camp by peter mcconnell
Now, you mentioned the narrative theme that you've chosen your games from today, and there's perhaps no genre that more fully captures the narrative ideal than the RPG. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And it does, I guess, particularly the JRPGs, and maybe Mm -hmm. this was more true uh, in the 90s and, and before, you know, earlier editions of, of those sorts of games where there was sort of bad translation at times. So you used to get these games that were sprawling and the plot could be a bit of a mess and some of the ideas that were trying to get conveyed didn't quite land. So as a player, they were sort of bewilderingly brilliant experiences. Um, but certainly in this case, I, I know this game is is has been everyone's played it it's been done to death music from it has featured a lot on sound of play and rightly so because it's ace um but I, I couldn't let this opportunity slip to to talk about how much i love final fantasy 7 that the story of that game uh, it's it's not perfect there are some elements of it that that go a little bit awry perhaps kate sith and that whole sub um, mm. subplot never quite worked for me but when it works it really works Um, and again without going into kind of spoiler territory there's a a sort of a mid to late game reveal where it puts this whole different spin on a flashback sequence that you've played through much earlier in the game you come to realize that a pivotal character perhaps wasn't as they seemed at the time and Mm. i remember being blown away by that um, the characters in the game, so many, so many memorable characters. Um, Sephiroth, p- 
probably the greatest video game villain, if not one of the greatest villains of all time. Like, what a really despicable human he is or creature he is. Um, and his, his first appearance when you've been captured by President Shinra, thrown in the clink, and then you wake up to find your cell is mysteriously unlocked and just every character has been, you know, brutally killed in this whole um, Shinra headquarters. And, and the guy that you assumed was going to be the sort of main antagonist is, is actually easily dispatched. And, and this new, much, much more intimidating character is introduced. I just, I, I loved that game at the time and I still do. And, and when I replayed it through all the way through recently, I was worried it would have aged badly many aspects of it of course have the gameplay and the graphics and so on but the actual story i still found it an absolute joy to play speaking of villains in in that game the track i've gone for is is not actually a sephiroth affiliated i've actually gone for genova's theme um genova as a concept as a character is is fascinating and the fact that you've got that uh link between it the genova creature that is in effect an ancient alien um and and sephiroth the um you know the, whose will is kind of bending that creature to to do what he what he wants um, I find that a, a very interesting concept. And Genova perhaps bears a resemblance to some other great characters from The Thing is one of my favourite films with Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, d- digging something horrible up from the ice that, that wasn't ever really meant to be um, dug up is, is a very similar concept. So I, I loved Genova as a character and all of the, the cutscenes featuring Sephiroth's quest to find his mother or whatever he considers it to be. Um, were, were brilliant, um, and Genova's theme uh, I thought was was a is I just is a tremendous track. I, I listen to it very regularly. It's my favourite song from that game. Um, the version I've gone for is a, a sort of an orchestral version from the Distant Worlds uh, albums. That the uh, that was like a sort of a live orchestra that recorded. Um, versions of Final Fantasy tracks. I was lucky enough to see them a couple of times and Nobuo Uematsu himself was was in attendance, which was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think this version of this track, it's different from the game. In the game, it's a bit more otherworldly and kind of sinister and with an element of melancholy. That's been my word of the day, hasn't it? Melancholy. <laughs> Whereas this version, I thought, you know, is a, a bit more of an up-tempo um, boss battle kind of feel to it, a bit more of a sense of peril and uh, grandeur. I don't really have anything to add to it. I've not played Final Fantasy VII myself, but uh, I am always interested in how many different reinterpretations of the music there have been over the years. You know, um, all of... Uematsu's scores and maybe none more than the Final Fantasy VII score has been remixed and re-recorded and orchestrated and performed across the world and it's really kind of inspiring to see this level of of love and attention paid to this music and the the life that it's taken after its original run on the game itself so this is a hopefully familiar piece of music to a lot of people. This is J-E-N-O-V-A from Final Fantasy VII.
we have one piece of music left to listen to today. But before we do that, I would like to remind everyone to go over to canonrinse.com slash forum where you can request your own pieces of music to be played on future Sounds of Play. We will play those, discuss them, listen to them all together as a community. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at canonrinse, or you can uh, even find us on Facebook. We have a Patreon as well. Uh, that is under Canon Rinse, which is, of course, the name of our main podcast where we discuss video games in depth every week, every Monday. Yes, I would like to thank my guest, John, today. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, actually. We'll have to have you back on sometime and talk more about your writing. Would you like to direct our listeners' attention to any pieces of work that you're really excited about right now? Oh, thank you very much, Ryan. It's, I'll go quickly, uh, before I answer that question, just say what a pleasure it's been to appear on this podcast. I, um, I, I sort of finally started listening to podcasts about a year ago, embarrassingly, and we just <laughs> discovered them and quickly stumbled upon this video games music podcast that I thought, oh, this sounds good. Immediately listened to every Sound of Play episode back to back on my commute into work oh. every day. Um, and absolutely love the show. So it, it's thank you, not just for having me on, but thank you for all those many hours of entertainment that you've given me. It's much appreciated. Oh, well, it's our pleasure to create. <laughs> and yes, in terms of my stuff, uh, yeah, there's a few uh, things I will uh, plug shamelessly and very quickly. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Richter Writes. So that's Richter, R-I-C-H-T-E-R, Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. I'm on Instagram, which is at John Richter Writes. So that's just J-O-N at the start. I have a website, which is www.john-richter.com. And that's where you can find links to all of my books. I've got three books out at the moment with a fourth, hopefully on the way soon. Um, there's a bit of other weird stuff on there, which you might enjoy, including a link to a text adventure that I wrote as my only foray into the world of video games development. Um, which uh, for a while it was the top rated horror game on uh, the text adventures site but um, then it got oh, nice. one, bad, one bad review and it got knocked off the top spot sadly but never mind <laughs> um, I was up there for a, you know a month or so so yeah please ch check that out um, my latest thriller is called uh, Never Rest which you can find uh, in paperback or for your e-reader device if you take a look on, uh, on Amazon uh, or, or any other site that you get your reading materials from We'll have to check that out and uh, hopefully hear back from you again in the future. But until that time, let us go out with another very triumphant piece of music. There's so much that can be said about Mario music, and each soundtrack sounds substantially different from game to game. This is from Mario, at the time of recording, Mario's newest adventure, Super Mario Odyssey. And this is not the introductory level, but it's like the level that kind of kicks off the adventure once you kind of leave the opening area and first venture out into this wild and unexplored space. Uh, the first area is a, um, a tutorial area, is a town, it's settled, the, the occupants are friendly, and so this is your first foray out into the natural world, the kind of un camped wilds this is called fossil falls composed by naoto kubo and it's just about as grand as you could want it to be you know it's as very uh sweeping very emotional but um just a really good piece of music has a really strong tune as we were talking about before and it's uh i don't know just kind of impossible to not smile when listening to 
Uh, John, have you played the new Super Mario Odyssey? Nope. Um, t- to my shame, I have not uh, had the opportunity <laughs> to do it yet. You know, I was talking about being like a one a one console guy. So mm-hmm. yeah, for whatever stupid reason, I seem to be a Sony diehard and I only ever own Playstations. So I need to remedy that because that's a bit ridiculous and I'm missing out on lots and lots of excellent gaming experiences. Um, so I'm, I'm sure this track will motivate me to go and, and break my Nintendo duck, as it were. Hmm. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong. We don't want to shame anyone into uh, spending more of their time on video games. Like, this is naturally something we do because we love to do it. (laughs) Uh, But, I mean, there's just so many amazing experiences you can have with the medium that if you were really going to hunt down everything, then you would spend your entire life doing it just like the entire Canon Rinse crew does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes well that, that agreed it, it's a it's a huge time sink isn't it that's that is the one downside of video games yeah. is that you if you try and play everything you just would never well you can't it's impossible so you have to sort of pick and choose what you think you're going to enjoy and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong but um the mario games that i have played over the years have all been very enjoyable so uh, there's no reason why i wouldn't enjoy this one if i pick myself up the appropriate equipment it's my birthday soon so maybe someone will want to treat me to one (laughs) this is fossil falls from super mario odyssey and we will catch you next week (laughs) 